Well, uh, turn to John chapter 1, if you are not already there. As Michael said, we are going to be using from the statement of Christology from Ligonier, I think everybody got one of these sheets, that we, the creed or the statement that we use, uh, if you go on the website, I don't know if we're all aware of this, but they have a whole series of 26 well, affirmations and denials that go with it, as well as some other uh, material uh, kind of expositing the, the statement. And so it's really a valuable resource. And so I thought I would take four of these articles, st- uh, affirmations and denials, through the four weeks of Advent and use them as a kind of launching pad for um, the topics for the sermon. So I'm not going to do a direct you know, line-by-line exposition of the statements or anything, but these will be our starting point. And so I thought I'd give them to you as a sheet so you'd have them here. So we'll, my plan is to do this week the deity of Christ, and then next week the humanity, and then the work of Christ, and then concluding with the victory of Christ. And I believe I'll be gone next week once again, so sorry for that. But I think Michael's going to take the, the humanity of Christ um, So next week from Article 7. Um, so that's the, the plan for Advent. So this week will be Article 1 and going to uh, John chapter 1 to, to study that. So let's pray as we go to God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we know that before all time, you with the Son and the Spirit determined to save us as a particular people to yourself. Nothing we can say or do can express our gratitude that we are among those people. We look upon the cross of Christ with an awe and a wonder that God would become a man to save wretches like us. This is truly amazing grace. By your Spirit grant that we this morning can walk away with a refreshed sense of just how amazing grace in Christ is. In his name we ask, amen. Let's stand and we'll... Read John chapter 1, and we'll read the whole prologue, chapter 1 through through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, 
He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known to us. Praise God. You may be seated. A while back I heard an interview with a Lutheran minister named uh, Matthew Richard. He wrote a book called, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Subtitle, Twelve False Christs. The the notion is, we all build a a Jesus in our own mind, or we're prone to build a a false Christ in our own mind to produce one that really reflects the image of us or of our own desires. And so, I'll give you the the uh, 12 false Christs that he outlines in the book. And most of them are pretty self-explanatory. First one is the mascot. Second one is the option among many. Third, the good teacher. Fourth, the therapist. Fifth, the giver of bling. Sixth, the national patriot. Seven, the social justice warrior. Eight, the moral example. Nine, the new Moses. Ten, the mystical friend. Eleven, the feminized. And twelve, the teddy bear. These are twelve false Christs that he identifies specifically within our culture and goes on to explain how we can counteract that. Uh, But when we approach Jesus, and perhaps especially during this season, the focus is often on Jesus as the meek and mild one, the servant of all, you know, that baby in the manger, the the savior of the world. And of course, nothing is wrong with any of those uh, things that we see during Christmas time, and they're all good and worthy of consideration. But I think what is really shocking about the arrival of Jesus is that God became a man to save us. God became a man. So really this week and next week are the same message, just with a different emphasis. This week is God became a man. Next week, God became a man. (laughs) When we begin to grasp even a tiny portion of, of that transcendence of God, His eminence in the person of work, and person and work of Christ should floor us. When we glimpse something of the heights of the godness of Jesus, God in flesh finds fresh and shocking meaning to us. When we see Jesus as the God-man, we see the real Jesus. So my prayer for this sermon is that we will get to see just a bit more of the transcendent glory of God revealed to us in this man Jesus. And that the truths that we examine here will help us to uh, shift our posture a little bit more to a greater reverence and worship of the one true God as revealed to us in Jesus. So, we'll go to John 1, 1 through 5 to begin begin looking at the transcendence and then we'll uh, conclude by looking at 
the imminence of Christ. So first, the transcendence of Jesus. Jesus is that, as article number one says, the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity. John 1, 1 through 5, once again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John's point here, he's really about to recount the life of Jesus and to tell us about this person, Jesus. And he begins his gospel. He sets it up this way by telling us at the very beginning of the story who this man is and where he came from. What is his identity? And he is, he tells us, this word. This word is eternal, divine. He's distinct. He's a creator. He's the source and sustainer of all life. He tells us of his eternality. He was, this word, was present at the inception of all things, at the beginning of all things, which demonstrates that he was not a product of the beginning, but he was there at the beginning. If without him was not anything made that was made, that includes himself. He was there at the beginning, demonstrating his eternality. His divinity, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says explicitly, the Word was God. Likewise, the divine right of creativity is ascribed to this Word. So he is indeed divine. But he's also distinct. The Word, says, was with God which shows that he's distinct from God, namely from God the Father. But at the same time, he was God, he says, namely God the Son, showing us both his unity and his Godhead. So this word is indeed the second person of the Trinity. Also, he is creator. The word is creator. This power of supreme, comprehensive, all things, comprehensive creativity is ascribed to Jesus, an attribute that only God Almighty can truly claim. Verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We read in Genesis, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. By divine speech, everything was created, vegetation, birds, fish, land animals, and man received the breath of life at his command. Jesus, the word, is also the source and sustainer of life. Verse 4, in him was life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. By the word, life is sustained. As we read in Hebrews 1, 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The divine word has been revealed to us and given life to all men. So what we conclude and what the creed announces to us is that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Paul said it this way in Colossians. He says that he is the image of the invisible God. And he goes on later to say he, the the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. 
He is the revealed Word of God. And it's no coincidence that John 1 rings of Genesis 1 to us. It's John, John's purpose to show that Jesus is God. And what is more basic to divinity than creation? Jesus is creator and he is also the new creator. At creation, light and darkness were separated by the word of God. And at the revelation of the divine word, we read here in history, light again repels darkness. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So God spoke life into existence at creation and Jesus, who is the word, Calvin calls him here the speech of God, brought life to mankind as the light of the world. So when we encounter the real Jesus in the text of scripture, I think we're left with only one reasonable question. And that is from Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? The only appropriate question when we encounter Jesus in Scripture is, why on earth does Jesus care about me? Consider just for a moment the creative power of Jesus. I've had a strange obsession with space lately. I get on these weird obsessions. But uh, In 1977, Voyager 1 and 2 were launched from Cape Canaveral, and their mission was to examine the outer planets of the solar system. And the mission was successful, very successful. Voyager 1 and 2 sent back the most extraordinary images of the planets, the storm on Jupiter, the moons, the volcanic moon of Jupiter, Io, all these things that just shocked all these scientists. It took approximately 12 years from Earth before Voyager left uh, the planet Neptune. It was traveling that whole time. And it's amazing, using the gravitational forces of the planet the spacecraft achieved ridiculous speeds. I think right now Voyager 1 is sailing through space at a rate of 38,000 miles per hour. That's over 10 miles per second. In 41 years uh, of travel, Voyager 1 has traveled almost 13.5 million miles, and it's just kind of broken the barrier of our solar system, depending on how you (laughs) define that. So our solar system is huge. It took going 10 miles per second, 41 years for Voyager 1 to break our solar system. It's an extraordinary human achievement, really. I can't even really wrap my brain around what 10 miles per second looks like, or the distance, 13.5 million miles. But if we take a step back and think about this on a grander scale, Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to our our star, at 4.2 light years away, it would take, traveling the speed of Voyager 1, 38,000 miles per hour, it would take 80,000 years to get to that star. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is roughly 100,000 light years away. So Proxima Centauri, 4.2, our galaxy, 100,000 light years away containing two to four hundred billion stars or solar systems. So at Voyager speeds, it would take two million years to traverse the galaxy, if I did my math right, which is 
distinct possibility that I didn't. Um, <laughs> but the nearest galaxy to us then is another two million light years from the Milky Way galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy. And Milky Way and Andromeda are, are two of literally billions of galaxies in the observ- observable universe, which is at present 13 plus billion light years across. So as amazing as amazing as Voyager was, all of a sudden I think that that project begins to look kind of cute in, in the grand scope of things. You might say we've been able to shoot a couple of spitballs out into the hallway from the classroom and, and we're cheering about it. We've heard Earth called, I think, a little blue marble in space or a speck of dust on the cosmic scale. But really those comparisons are not appropriate. If, if the human body stood, if my body stood for the Milky Way galaxy, our entire solar system would not amount to one of my cells. We, we climb a mountain and we stand on top and we feel so tiny and we look around and look at the geography and as far as the eye can see, that's a, a dot on the map of a planet which amounts to the size of little more, less than a cosmological microbe in the grand scheme of things. So I say all of that partly because I got obsessed with space and couldn't stop thinking about it, <laughs> but also to make this very simple point that our little race beholds this man as a mascot or a therapist or a mystical friend, the man who created all of that, with a word, by talking, he created that. Psalm 147 that he says that he determines the number of the stars. He calls them each by name. I saw somewhere they guess, which I don't know how they guessed this, but 30 billion trillion stars he knows by name. I was talking to Kelly about this. She asked me, why did he create that? We, we can't even fathom it, much less see it all. And our conclusion was, of course, he did it for his good pleasure. And we're amazed by the, the photographs that Voyager 1 and 2 sent back or the Hubble telescope sends back. And we stand amazed at the geology and the intricacies of our own planet. God enjoys sites and places and literally trillions of places that our best telescopes will never even look at. For his good pleasure. It's all... For him. Do we then really truly understand what it means when we say these words, Jesus is God? And I choose to focus on his creative power to illustrate the point, but I could have chose his holiness or his justice or his wisdom, all these infinite attributes. Jesus is God and he is perfect in every way not hindered by anything. So we have to ask ourselves, do we really, who do we think we are to strike out in rebellion against the one who made all the galaxies in the universe? I caught myself this morning, I was, the baby was kind of up all night and I got irritated with God and I started to catch myself saying, you could fix this, my wife doesn't deserve this. Who am I to say something like that to God?
where we have to ask ourselves in light of these realities, do we really want to replace him with the idols of our own hearts? Uh, Isaiah makes the absurdity plain. He, he talks about the man who cuts down a tree, burns half, worships the other half. It's insane. Are the idols of our own hearts really worthy of the worship that we give them any more than a chunk of wood is? Are the things which God has made more worthy of worship than He is Himself? And we have to ask ourselves, do we really think that the Jesus of our imagination, and we all have the Jesus of our imagination, do we really think He is superior to the real Jesus? I mean, it's, it's really just absurd I, to even go here, but unfortunately it, it applies. No, our, our conceptions of Jesus, our own heart idols, do not even compare to him. The teddy bear Jesus or the giver of bling Jesus are truly a tragic joke when the real Jesus is in the room. So I hope we can begin to grasp even a fraction of the magnitude of what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus as God. Because God is worthy to be worshipped and to be worthy to be known as he truly is. But also, and this is important, I think also because our understanding of the magnitude of grace scales in direct proportion to our understanding of the magnitude of God. I'll say that again. Our understanding of the magnitude of grace scales in direct proportion to our understanding of the magnitude of God. When we really understand who God is and who we are, the words, God became man to save us. God became man to save us. To put, to quote it like Michael Horton's uh, title of his book, that puts amazing back into grace. Let's turn now to verse, uh, we're going to skip down to verse 14, and we'll look briefly at the entrance of God into history. This is the eminence of God entered into history as the Messiah. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those verses 1 through 5 reflect the creation for us. Verse 14 reflects the glory of God in the tabernacle, in the Exodus. When Moses had finished working on the, and erecting the tabernacle, we read in Exodus 40, 34 through 35, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The the cloud of Yahweh's glory hung over the tabernacle. And when it moved, the people of God moved. If the people could see the cloud of the glory of God above the tabernacle, they knew God was in their midst. The covenant promise was being fulfilled. God was with his people. And, And what a condescension that was that the eternal creator of the universe would make his presence even known to sinful human men, or that he would journey with them through the wilderness or make his abode pitch his tent with these people. 
John says that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. And literally, I'm sure you know, that is tabernacled among us. He took upon himself that very tent. Paul calls our bodies a, a tent. The human flesh is a tent. Jesus pitched his tent among us. And the clarity of that condescension of that act should leave us speechless. You know, I can kind of begin to wrap my mind around the glory cloud because there's a sort of transcendent mystery to that still, that this is God and he's doing something mysterious. Still an amazing condescension but that Jesus would take on flesh, that should leave us speechless. That is the eminence of transcendence. The people of Israel saw the cloud, and it was a comfort to them, but the apostles and the disciples saw face to face what Hebrews says is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power point is, Jesus, who is God, entered into history. That's one of the points of the first article, that he entered into history. As Galatians 4, 4 and 5 say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. As we read in the Apostles' Creed, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's not there to condemn Pontius Pilate, but to say this happened in space, in time, in history. Not only did he enter into history, but he came as the promised Messiah. If you flip over to verses 40 and 41 of chapter 1 of John, we read of Andrew, who had heard John the Baptist speaking, and presumably he had heard him say something like, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or perhaps when he said, the one who comes after me, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. But he heard John speak, and he followed Jesus. And when he followed Jesus, then he went on to track down his brother, Simon Peter, and he told him, We have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. This is no insignificant detail. I believe the scriptures testify that the height of God's glory is shown in saving his people through anointing King Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's extraordinary. We just talked about the, the expanse of the whole universe and on this little tiny microbe, less than a microbe-sized speck of dust, his greatest act has been performed. His display of his wisdom and the righteousness of his himself in his redemptive plan is a greater act of God than than even creating all of the billions of galaxies. We read this in Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. Paul tells us, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in essence he says that through the church he's showing off his wisdom to all the rest of the heavenly beings. Through the church, 
through that mystery hidden for ages, he's displaying his manifold wisdom. And that is a confounding beauty. I say confounding because the intellect of all mankind cannot make sense of the glorious mystery of God becoming a man to save his people. We see this in all other man-made religions. They either swing to one side or the other, to complete imminence or transcendence. We can't grasp a God who is both utterly transcendent, completely other and unfathomable, while at the same time being imminent, being personal and active in human history. That just that can't be right. For pantheistic religions, God is utterly transcendent because he's God. We, we are all God and everything is God around us. <coughs> Muslims, on the other hand, as an example, Allah is totally transcendent. That is one reason why Christianity does not work for Muslims. They, they can't get their mind around this idea of a, a God who would stoop so low to become a human being and to even go to the cross and die the death of a scoundrel. And I think if we're honest, we as Christians, uh, if we have an appropriate biblical view of the perfection of God, uh, we share the befuddlement of the Muslim. The difference is we rejoice in it. It's glorious. Our bewilderment is a thanksgiving bewilderment. That is my hope uh, for this sermon, is, is that we'll look more at the humanity of Jesus ne- next week, presumably, and the depths to which he plunged in, and the intimacy of all of that. But for this week, I hope we can walk away with something more of a sense of godly bewilderment, that Jesus became a man, that God became a man to save us. Because bumping up against the imminent transcendence of Jesus should leave us standing with nothing in our hands before God. No, no merit badges, no, no token gifts, no complaint cards. Empty-handed is where God wants us. Empty-handed so that we can receive His pure grace and the righteousness of the Son of God. We're going to confess the affirmation and denial together here in a bit of Article 1, so I hope you'll join me. And I'm guilty of going through the motions when we confess creeds and truth statements and just reading them. But the truth is, these things which they contain are, are vital for the truth of the gospel. They are essential. They are the truth of the gospel. So I urge you that if you really believe it, to confess it wholeheartedly, for it is, it is a bedrock truth of our faith. When we approach Jesus, do we really want a therapist Jesus? Do we really want a mystical friend or a mascot? I do not want that Jesus. The, the only Jesus, the one who is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the promised Messiah of ages past, is the Messiah, the Jesus I want. I want the Jesus who by every, he spoke every galaxy into existence. I want the Jesus who stooped so low as to devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. And by the grace and love of God beyond degree, through his gift of faith, I have him and he has me. So let's confess together and deny 
from Article 1 of the Statement on Christology. We affirm that Jesus is the incarnation in history of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is Christ, God's promised Messiah. We deny that Jesus Christ is a mere man or was a fictional creation of the early Christian church.